welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hi there, and welcome to this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and it's great to have you with us here today. It's always interesting how people find their way into this industry, and for some of them, it's not a case of that they found hairdressing as much as it is that hairdressing found them. Before I push the record button on these podcasts, I often prep my guest by telling them that most of the times that the listener is not that interested in their life story, but that what that you want to know as a listener is, what can I learn from this that will help me in my business? And I believe that to be true. But sometimes their life story is compelling and how they think and the decisions that they've made as they've navigated their career is really interesting and, and full of life lessons, especially for young hairdressers. It's like there was a moment in their life where they were at a crossroads and they could have turned right, but they turned left instead. And that, that puts them on a path that is perfect for them. But perhaps it was a path that they had probably never imagined. And, and then the rest is history. Anyway, I think that today's guest is a bit like that. He had to leave home at 17 and had to support himself. He did numerous jobs from bartending and stacking shelves in a supermarket. And then one day, he spotted an advertisement in a local Tony and Guy salon for a hair assistant. He applied, and that was the beginning of an amazing career that has taken him to the top of the pile when it comes to being an editorial session stylist. His name is Anthony Turner, and he's gone on to build a reputation as one of the very best in the business, working on the biggest fashion week shows with the biggest magazines, models, and designers all over the world. In today's podcast, We'll discuss Anthony's journey and the decisions that he's made along the way, the need to have courage and take risks, where his creativity comes from, and the lessons that he's learned along the way, and lots more. I hope you enjoy listening to Anthony as much as I do. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Anthony. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for having me. Anthony, it's really good to uh, have you on the show. For starters, you're the first person I've I've had on the show. It's got the same name as me, so uh, it's a, it's a pleasure. Oh. And Anthony talking to Anthony. So uh, uh, <laughs> if nothing else, it's going to be fun. So I, I've got a question I want to start with. Hit me with and, it. And it might throw you completely. I don't know. Maybe maybe not. Uh, but I just want to ask you this: Do you remember a time in your life where you had to make a decision, and now you look back at it and you realise? That you made a really important decision and what was that decision yeah actually yeah for sure i think it was the decision that i made so i was at tony and guy and i would i'd done all my training i was on the floor i was cutting hair and the manager of the salon who was and still i mean literally even to this day i still look back and think christ he was a formidable force with a pair of scissors. Like he was amazing. Um, 
he always told me, you need to move to London, you need to move to London, you need to move to London. And I decided that, okay, I need to move to London. I'd never been, I don't remember a time when I was more scared in all of my life because I'd got, you know, I hadn't really got a lot. I moved to, and in the end, I did move to London. And, you know, I, I turned up on the doorstep on Redchurch Street to this flat that I'd managed to get um, with a with a couple of bin bags full of stuff that I'd got. That's all I'd got to my name is a couple of bin bags full of stuff. And I turned up on this doorstep and I remember this the guy that lived there was called Stevie and he opened the door in a red kimono and it was this older gay guy who ended up almost kind of like being a bit of a drag mother to me in a sense. Do you know what I mean? He kind of really took me in and looked after me, but he was wonderful. But I remember thinking that, I, I do you know what? I'm going to go right back because I remember on the last day of my day at Tony and Guy, I remember sitting in the toilets at Tony and Guy in Stafford and sobbing, literally sat there sobbing. I had no idea what I was getting myself into or what on earth was about to unfold in front of me or how on earth I was going to even be, how was I even going to be able to afford to live in London? Do you know what I mean? But that's really the decision that changed everything was making that decision to fuck it and move to London. I'm going to go. I've got my mate who drove a white man, um, a chavy mate of mine from, from the Midlands who drove this white van. He was a painter, decorator, drove a white van. And I was like, listen, mate, can you give me um, a, a lift to London? He gave me a lift to London, ended up on this doorstep of this flat that I'd found on Redshirt Street. And bearing in mind, Redshirt Street at that time was a shithole. It wasn't anything like it is now. Um, you know, it wasn't this kind of like bougie, fashiony kind of place. You know, it was completely run down. No one really lived there. And I turned up on this doorstep on Redshirt Street. Stevie opened the door in a red kimono and literally brought me in. And that's the decision I made that changed everything. And if I hadn't have made that decision, then I definitely wouldn't be sitting here now. I wouldn't be talking to you now. I, I, don't, I really don't think. Um, I just bit the bullet and did it. I don't know where that courage came from. Yeah, well, that's, that the word. that's the word, isn't it? The whole thing is about courage to make those sort of decisions yeah. in life. I've made them, you've made them. I mean, in totally yeah. different ways. But a lot of people don't have the courage to try certain things and you just never know what's on the other side of trying certain things. And, and you look yeah. at, you know, you, you took that, that left turn in your life and look where it's taken you. You've got a great, amazing story. So, you know, th there'll be lots of young hairdressers all over the world that would love to do what you do. And they don't necessarily yeah. understand what it's really like. And one of the things I love about podcasts is that it's not a visual medium. And so you get to understand people's story and what makes them who they are and, and you know, why mm -hmm. they think the way that they think. And, and, yeah. and that's where, where I think the magic is in podcasts. So can you tell us... A little bit about your life growing up, because there are so many references from your life growing up that yeah. when you know them, you can sort of see how they've influenced your work and the person that you become and the way you think yeah. about fashion and beauty. And I think that's really special to, to be able to, oh, to tap into that. Yeah. I mean, thank you. But So I grew up in... Um, oh, 
God, I grew up in an extremely working class mining town in the Midlands. Not too far away from Birmingham, but just far enough away that it felt distant. Do you know what I mean? Birmingham. So for anybody that doesn't know, Birmingham is um, a big, big city in the middle of England. It's it's actually the second city um, for all of those who think Manchester is. It's not Birmingham. Um, (laughs) And I live not too far away from there, but I grew up in a very working class mining town. extremely working class family um all my family lived on the same street and my nan lived at number one hunter road it, the, the 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 street was called hunter road she lived at number one and she had actually been born in that street so that gives you some idea of wow. yeah, yeah of how insulated yeah. Um, my family were which is very charming and lovely in one sense but later on in life it kind of became quite problematic and my aunt lived at number 18 i had um, another uncle that lived at number 17 and um, my other aunt lived at number 23 and we lived at number 48 and we all lived in the same street and really i learned very quickly about the importance of family because my family meant everything to me and especially the women and that's where I started to learn a lot about the strength of women, in a sense, because I guess I witnessed uh, it was really tough. I mean, when I said, I mean, really tough, you know. I mean, for example, there was a, a bridge that was quite close to um, the, the, the road that I lived on. There was a bridge that the coal trains used to go over and we were really we were poor i mean we didn't have anything and the the coal trains used to go over the bridge and sometimes the coal would drop over the bridge and me and my sister and and a few of my cousins we used to have to go and and pick the coal up that had fallen over the bridge so that we could keep you know so that we could keep warm yeah it was tough i mean we're talking i mean you're not that old so we're talking no and yeah. that's the thing. I'm not, I'm not that. We're not talking like um, ye old Victorian England. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> exactly. that at all. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like Dickensian. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't. We're, I mean, I'm talking about early nineties. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we we okay. really struggled. I mean, yeah. my mum used to pick potatoes in a field, and she was a cleaner. All my aunts were cleaners. Um, I remember my mum cutting. Um, my mum couldn't afford a new pair of shoes, so she she had to cut cardboard cutouts out of cereal packets to put to to lay over the holes in the shoes. I'll never forget that. Oh, yeah, like yeah. you know, we were poor. We we had nothing. But are, at the same are you, are you time, my dad's still alive. My dad's not. He actually died at Christmas. He had a, he had a few strokes and died at Christmas. But I had a, oh. I had a bit of a funny funny relationship with my dad anyway. But but one thing we did have. And one thing my family learned me from a very early age is the importance of dark humour, which the Brits are very good at, yeah. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, and no matter what situation we were in, and no matter how bad it got, we still managed to laugh at it. Yeah. And so that's kind of that's kind of influenced my work as well in terms of 
a little touch of darkness, but kind of making it quite camp and funny at the same time, not taking it too seriously. And that's the way that my family operated. You know, I mean, a really good story is um, when um, I was my, my, I was at my grand's um, at my nan's one one afternoon, and my nan was like, "Okay, look, I need to go to the shops. Will you come to the corner shop with me?" There was a corner shop on the end of the street, and there was a friend of hers called Julie who was walking up the street. And my nan stopped her, and she said, "Oh, hello, Julie." My nan was, you know, my nan's Irish. She was like, "Hello, Julie. How's it going?" And, and Julie was like, "Oh, not too, you know, not too well." Um, um, my, my nan, my mom's just died. My mom's just passed away. Oh, I'm, my nan was like, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. What are you doing with your nan's cooker? My cooker's going on. My cooker's on the blink. Literally five minutes later, Julie's, Julie's sons are coming up the street with a cooker in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So it's like, it's charming and lovely. And like, you know, those, it's, it's really, yeah. yeah, it's tough. It, it was really bloody tough yeah. and it only got tougher as, as i was getting older because i knew that i didn't fit into where i was from mm. um i didn't as i kind of reached my teens and i started to kind of get a bit weirder and started listening to Portishead, and then started listening to Susie and the banshees and then started listening to the pesh mode mm. i kind of knew that i didn't really belong there and then that's when things started to really change i guess how did you how did you find your way into hairdressing? You mentioned Tony and Guy before. Tell us how, how did that happen? Yeah, so so basically, um, unfortunately, okay. So like I said before, on the one hand, it was very charming that my family all lived in the same street, but on the other hand, it was very detrimental to me because they weren't that educated on things that you know. And I'm talking before the internet, before mm. there was the first gay kiss in a soap opera. Mm. before um, Queer as Folk, before any of those kind of TV moments that kind of opened up queerness to the wider audience, it came out that I was gay. I never came out. I was found out. Mm. And unfortunately, my mum and dad didn't really take too kindly to that. So um, I was given the option to either you're gay and you leave or you're straight and you stay they thought it was a choice mm. definitely not a choice yeah um it's definitely not a choice because i think at that point i would have definitely chosen to uh to be straight because i just wanted an easy life i i had mm. i didn't know any different but i was gay i knew i liked boys and so yep i was out i was out on my ear and um, my bags were packed for me and i had to leave Mm, and so, um, you know, sleeping on train station benches, crashing at mates' flats, sleeping on couches, wherever I could find. And and I managed to kind of, you know, claw my way forward and managed to get a job in quick save, stacking shelves. And then I got a job in um, a bar. What, what sort of age were you at this time? I was, seven, I was 17 at the time. Right. So you got kicked out of home at 17? Yeah, I, I right. got kicked out of home at seventeen for being gay. Yeah, um, which which is a, you know it's it's hard you know that you know I'm only just finding out about myself yeah, and of course I didn't really even know what gay being what gay meant I didn't know what it truly represented yeah. I didn't I just knew that I would I you know I knew that I I wanted to fall in love with a boy you know you were still and, a child at seventeen you're still a child. 
yeah, you're a kid. It's, yeah. it's, it's a very young age. Yeah. And then I was walking after my shift at a supermarket at QuickSave. I walked past Tony and Guy and saw that they had a little sign in the window saying that they needed an assistant. And at this point, I wanted to get into college. I wanted to be um, a fashion journalist. I wanted to write because I love to write and I love to draw and I love to illustrate. So I thought that the two could go hand in hand. And I was like, you know, if I could write about fashion and draw maybe a fashion illustrator. But being a hairdresser just never crossed my mind. I'd never, it was like the last thing I could ever think of. Mm. Um, but anyway, Tony and Guy accepted me as an assistant and I was a little shit to begin with. <laughs> I really didn't, I really was. I, I knew that I didn't want to be a hairdresser at that point and I was sweeping hair and making tea and doing all the things I was meant to do but I was a bit of a cocky shit because I, I knew I, I wasn't into hair. I was just like, I don't get it at all. Mm. But then when I started to learn about fashion I started to, you know, I was reading the face, ID, days. I started to learn about fashion a lot more and kind of learn who the different designers were. And then McQueen came and it was the McQueen Voss show. And that's when really that Voss show was when everything switched. Everything changed. I'd always be, I'd always had a kind of dark sensibility a dark and romantic sensibility. I always wanted to be in love, but I always kind of loved tragedy and darkness and the weirdness and, yeah, and anything yeah. that made people feel uncomfortable, I was always attracted to. Mm. It, whatever makes another person feel freaked out, I was going to love. Mm. Okay. And then, and then I saw that McQueen show and I was like, damn, damn. This is somebody that's speaking to me, you know. When that box folded, broke open and the glass smashed to the floor and there was the woman inside it in this asphyxiation mask and the box was full of moss, um, I knew it was a Joel Peter Witkin reference because I, I was obsessed with Joel Peter Witkin and I was obsessed with art, so I knew that. And that's when I really, really, really took notice of fashion. Mm. then my boss at Tony and Guy who should have sacked me at that point because I was such a little shit mm. and he didn't sack me because I've you know he, he, and now I know that he saw something in me because we've had that conversation but um, he said you know you know who does the hair for McQueen right and I was like no and actually there was no hair on that boss show it was bandages it was like yeah, yeah. Um, head wraps and bandages and two yeah which actually is um, a skinhead girl. If you think about it, it's like yeah. the, sh the short bandages on top yeah, of the two. It's the, it's the skinhead silhouette. And I was like, no, I, I don't know who does the hair from a queen. He was like, it's Guido. You need to get into Guido. So then I started to study Guido and really kind of delved into his back catalogue at that point and then looked in other McQueen's McQueen shows that he'd done, like um, What a Merry-Go-Round. That was another one that really stood out for me, the clowns and the skulls attached to the legs. All of that kind of macabre fantasy really attached itself to me. And I attached myself to it as well, like yeah. really easily and uh, yeah. delved into it. I, I think it's interesting, like what, what you're 
manager boss that Tony and Guy did because that's yeah. quite selfless, you know, and that's yeah. really important. Like you take your hat off to him. You were a problem child in the salon. You know what I mean? I was. But he, he could sense a talent about you at the same time. Yeah. And in a very selfless way, he pointed you in the right direction. I mean, he used to make me clean the stairs of the salon with a bloody toothbrush. I mean, I hated him. I couldn't yeah. bear him to begin with. I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, <laughs> cleaning the stairs with a toothbrush. But yeah. then when it came to um, model nights where we used to kind of have to blow dry hair, cut hair and, and stuff, he, to be fair, I owe a lot to him. Yeah. Because he really, really, really manoeuvred me. Yeah. Without me even really realizing it at the time. It's only now I can look back and I see what he does because I do it a lot with my assistants. Good. Yeah. You know, I apply the same thing to my assistants. But at the time, I was kind of like, who the fuck is this guy telling me to clean the stairs with a bloody toothbrush? Yeah. Like, who do you yeah. think he is? I don't even want to do this. Who, who is he? Can you say who he is? Yeah, his name's. Um, his, well, he had a salon name because there was two Marks. So his right. his name was Joel, but actually his name's Mark. And I know. He actually, I know who you're talking about. Shut up, do you? I know who you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> Mark Thompson. Yeah. Yes, I, I'm sure I know who you're talking about. If his real name was Joel, I'm sure I know who he's. You're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's 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 really interesting, and it's good to know that that as you say that you actually owe that person a lot. I do. Let, let me ask you this question. As a salon stylist, looking back at that as being part of yeah. your journey, what was the most yeah. important thing you learned as a salon stylist besides how to clean the stairs with a toothbrush? <laughs> <laughs> One thing, okay, so I owe a lot to Joel and I owe a lot to Tony and Guy. I really do. But one thing I can never really understand and what I kind of – had an issue with the methodical way of there was such a method to cutting hair and styling hair at that point. You know, we, we were taught certain sectioning patterns and we were taught um, that the hair should be pulled up at this degree and cut at this degree and, you know, all the rest of it. Yeah. When I really started to kind of be very, very interested in hairdressing, I kind of, I mean, very me, I started to kind of think, why like and dismantle it yeah. i start to kind of think well hang on a minute like why am i cutting hair that's curly in the same way as i'm cutting hair that's poker straight yeah. in the same sectioning pattern like i started to kind of be a bit kind of rebellious towards that and a bit like i don't know why i'm doing this in one way but for one woman who's got this type of hair but I'm doing exactly the same thing for another woman who's got a completely different hair type. I, I didn't understand that. So and then really that methodical way of working helped me to fit, to help me to kind of be like, actually, hang on a minute. I'm going to just start doing what I want to do. So instead of washing it, so what I do is, and I, I actually got a very, I actually got quite a few funny looks for doing this. So, in the beginning, what I do is I kind of sit the uh, my client down instead of washing their hair straight away, because that was the thing. You'd sit them down, have a chat to them, bloody bloody blah, send them off to the back wash, get the hair wash, sit in the chair, and then cut the hair. Da, 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 da. I didn't do that. I kind of thought, 
I'm going to do things a little bit differently and treat the hair as it, you know, treat the hair as an individual, I guess. Good. That's what you should do. Yeah. And, and so it's easy to get caught up in those situations where it is too, stru- like that structure can actually take away your creativity. You need to be able to break the rules, don't you? But the rules still give you some sort of foundation so that you can then yeah. fail your way through it and you have some point yeah. of reference as to why you're doing what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah? And the most important thing that I thought to myself was you have to know the rules in order to break the rules. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly what exactly. I did. That's it. Cool. You, you mentioned Guido. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Guido is probably widely regarded as the you know, best the best editorial, the yeah, the best editorial hairdresser on the planet. I mean, you know, um, and so he was the guy who done, you know, McQueen's hair. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, there's two podcasts that I did with Guido earlier on. So if you're listening to this one and you haven't checked out the Guido ones, then scroll back through the list. I forget what number it was, but, um, you know, they're well worth a listen to so you know who we're talking about. But you then became obsessed with Guido. And how did you meet him? So. I'll give you the edited version, but basically, yeah, yeah I've got a feeling you're good. Yeah. So, yeah, so basically, um, it was that that time of I just I'd moved to London, and it was that time of um, electro clash, that whole movement in London. It was very exciting. It was very pretentious. It was very up its own arse. Shoreditch was the kind of you know the epicenter of of creativity in a sense, you know, the Georgian Dragon and the Joiner's Arms and Boombox and all the rest of it. And I was a club kid. Navigated in immediately towards the club kids. I was I was kind of like this kind of goth romantic gothic romantic club kid. Anyway, so I was in a bar one night and I'd, I was in this salon. I was working in a salon called Taylor Taylor and we all went to um the tea rooms on Shoreditch High Street and there was a night there called Family and it was incredible and Guido was in there and all of the friends that I was with they were mostly hairstylists knew my obsession with him and he walked in and I got annoyed and like oh my god there's Guido there's Guido there's Guido and I'd had a bit to drink and I was like right this is my chance <laughs> So I went up to him and I was like, he'd just done this story in Love Magazine. And it was a story about, it was from a hair competition. And it wasn't a hair story, but it was him going up north to judge a hair competition. And I thought it was genius. So that was my point of contact. I was like, right, I know what to talk to him about. Went up to him and I was like, Guido, I loved your story in Love Magazine. And that was it. And really kind of, we started that conversation and we just kind of, you know, we did, we just kind of clicked. I mean, I remember cutting this kid. I, I, one of my friends who was standing at the bar, he had a hairline that I'd shaved off from the middle of the year to the middle of the year downwards, literally boned this hairline off. And the kid mm. was standing at the bar and weird. I was like, oh, look at that hairline, dear. You know, as he does. And um, <laughs> I was like, oh, I cut that. <laughs> and um, he was like, oh, that's nice, dear. And... Um, you know, it, it, we just kind of had this, you know, just this rapport going. And he said, listen, give me your number um, and maybe come and join my team one day. And um, I didn't think anything would come of it. 
And then I think six weeks later, I was working in New York on his team. Well, fantastic. I've well, never... You know, there's a, there's a couple of things again, you know, like there's so many people, it's like the lessons that are in your life story that I want people to think about. You know, a lot of people yeah. would see Guido walk in the bar and it was like, oh my God, I can't possibly go out and talk to him. And they've missed that life moment, that life opportunity, that's courage. And then you get yeah. a phone call one day and here's this kid who five years earlier or whatever is, is picking up coal off the street because he's yeah. that broke. And then you get the opportunity to go to New York. I mean, again, huge amount of courage to take that step is i mean tell us about that oh yeah it was mental i mean i remember so so basically the only i'd never all i remember from that moment is is never experiencing jet lag because i'd only ever been to mallorca with my nan and granddad mm. um they treated me and my sister one year when we were we were young and um we went to mallorca with them but before that, I had never experienced jet lag. And I remember landing in New York. I didn't know my ass from my elbow. I was like, I was so all over the place. And then all of a sudden, I had to go meet Guido at our partner's offices. And he knew. He was like, you have no idea what time of day it is, do you? And I was like, I really don't. <laughs> I really don't. And then, you know, all of a sudden, I was like, from, Taylor, from Tony and Guy to Taylor and Taylor, Taylor, Taylor. To all of a sudden going to doing like um, Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren and Donna Karen and Mark Jacobs and Luella Bartley in New York. It was like, I thought I'd been smacked around the face with a spade. I didn't know, of course. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I was complete. To be fair, and I'm going to be really honest, I was so inexperienced. I didn't know what the hell. I didn't even. At that point, I remember we had to, the first Luella show I did. It was like this big, fluffy hairdo, and I had to tongue. We had to tongue the hair really tight to make it big and fluffy. No one had ever really taught me how to use a curling iron properly, mm. but I blagged. I, I did it. I was watching very, you know, I was watching everybody else very, very closely, and I did it. And I remember doing, you know, I did it quite well, and. I, I figured it out. I worked it out. I never said anything to anyone. I never made a big deal of the fact that I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I mean, of course, I never made a big deal of it. Um, but I just did it. I got my head down. I worked so hard and I did it. Never complained. To be fair, there was really nothing to complain about. Um, I was just really amused with the fact that the steam came out of the drains in New York like it did in Home Alone. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I get I mean, it. That yeah. really got me. I remember thinking. Yeah. I remember we were in the we were in the van going to a show. We'd had this van where all the team used to travel around it. I'm looking at the steam coming out of the drains, being like, "Oh my god! Wait until I tell wait until I tell my mum that the steam comes out the drains like it really does in Home Alone." <laughs> I was yeah. more I was more bothered by that than anything else. And um, from there, I got to do Milan. I got to do Paris. Really, to be fair, I don't think I really started hairdressing fully until I started working with Guido. Yeah. I really don't. What is it that makes Guido so special? Um, I think what makes Guido so special is punk. I was a problem child. I was like very anti-everything. I was very like, didn't understand why 
people were cutting hair the way they were cutting hair. I didn't, under, you know, I was very kind of like anti all of that. And kind of Guido, only, Guido really kind of made me believe that I was never wrong in the first place. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I was, you know, all my references, are, you know, like Lee Bowery, who was an like really one of the founders of the club scene and the new romantic scene in London during the, during the yeah. 1980s. And really kind of like one of the most incredible performance artists, you know, like very, it's very anti-glamorous. It's very anti-fashion. It's very anti-hairdressing, but somehow making it merge with, making that merge with fashion is a, is a skill. And um, I think that's what makes Guido very, very, very special is turning something that could be potentially very ugly and very kind of, off and weird work mm. with what you've got in front of you in terms of like uh, Carly Cloth sitting there in a Chanel gown. Do you know what I mean? And making this oh, kind totally. of weird, yeah, yeah. ugly hairdo work. I think that's what you do too. You really push the envelope of redefining what is beauty and you make people question it and you look twice at it and it's like, you know, it's very, very clever, and I, I, you know, I, I understand that very fine edge you balance when you, when you yeah. do get it right. It's really special, and uh, yeah. you know, so you obviously learned a lot, a lot from him working with him. What, what, what's the main thing? Here's, a, here's another question. It's not really about the technical and creative side, but it's like to go from where you came from and yeah. the journey that you went on there was lots of times where there was a fork in the road. And I suppose yeah. that's why I asked you that very first question about the decisions that you made in your life yeah. is, is that you have navigated a very tricky journey. Yeah. And you've always made the right decisions. And I'm not going to say you've always made the right decisions. I'm sure you've made some absolutely. I have not always made the right decisions. <laughs> Trust me but, on that but, one. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, I knew as soon as I said it, it was wrong. But, but you've, you've navigated a journey. I suppose what I'm saying is I know lots of Anthony Turners that are 20 years younger than you. Yeah. And they might have, you know, the talent. They might have the opportunity, but yeah. they managed to come off the rails. And one of the things that I like about Guido, I like about you, is a a degree of humility and groundedness. And so that's why I was really happy for you to talk about your upbringing and because that makes you who you are. And you can go from that to being in a room with the supermodels of the world, the biggest name photographers, the biggest name, you know, actors, the biggest names, fashion designers, and you just cope with it. And, and that's, yeah. you should never underestimate that, how you've navigated life's journey, you know, with all the bumps that there's been. And I'm sure there's been some absolute disasters along the way, but oh, yeah. you've still risen to the top of the pile in what you do. And you're, you've got a lot of life left in you yet. At what point did you know it was time to go alone? What point did you decide to, I'm now no longer going to be on Guido's team. I'm going to be Anthony Turner and do my own thing. Because that's another big decision, isn't it? It is. It is. It really is. Do you want, I'm, going to, I'm going to give you the honest. I'm going, to, I'm going to be brutally honest. It was one time. So Guido had, so I, I mean, listen, I wouldn't be sitting here now if it wasn't for Guido and I'm, you know, uh, my obsession with Guido and my love for that man is 
is, um, I, you know, I, I say it all the time in every interview that I do and, it, and with all of my friends, I hold the most respect and the most love for that man. I really do. It, was, it wasn't always easy sailing. I didn't always get things right. Um, but he is a genius. But the one thing that I couldn't bear was his bloody kit bags. <laughs> right. So these kit bags... He has, at that point, I'm not, you know, I've, I've not been working with him now for over 10 years, so I'm not quite sure how many kit bags he has right now. But at the time, we were dealing with maybe 10 or 11 kit bags. Mm. And there was one point where American Airlines were not going to let us on the aeroplane with over 10 bags. And I remember I'd been thinking about maybe doing my own thing for a while and i remember being so stressed out about these goddamn bloody kit bags i was so over it i was just like i've had like i can't deal with these bloody bags anymore anyway this argument with american airlines that i had kind of switched the you know it's not just about it it's not just about the american airlines argument but that mm. was the kind of tipping point when I thought, yeah, yeah. do you know what? I I think it's time to kind of pass this over to somebody else because um the thing is is that whatever you do, you should be happy doing it. It, it should never yeah, it's gonna it's always gonna be stressful. You're gonna have stressful days. You're gonna have days where you don't want to do it anymore. But it but the next day should be another story. Mm. And I was like getting at that point i remember being so angry and so pissed off that american airlines weren't going to take these bags that that was kind of like i think that i should maybe step away a little bit because i was getting quite i was getting too upset mm. if that makes any sense yeah no i i can understand it's a, that's the turning point the tipping point the straw that break the camel's back i mean you know the thought it, of going your own way was there anyway and sometimes it was you know someone once said that to me actually about you know a, a part of my career he said to me something which has always stuck with me he said it's not just about being unhappy where you are it's about something else pulling you towards it yeah and that yeah, was definitely. that was a very Turning, it was an you know it was an insightful comment for me at the time that made yeah. me feel good about what I was doing. Um, so okay, so is that when you left New York and returned to London, or did you still stay in New York? No, I stayed in New York for a while, um, and I really feel like that was beneficial to me. Yeah, to be fair, I think that I stayed in New York for maybe a year and a bit mm -hmm. after I left Guido figured it out for myself you know i was doing e-commerce and making bits of money here and there and then um i got asked to do an interview magazine cover with carl templer and michael jansen and michelle williams and mark herasquillo who are all legends you know they're the top of the game and guido wasn't available so carl templer asked me to do um, this cover and really that was the turning point that was when things started to change and the pace started to pick up before that you know i was mm. cutting hair at home for cashing and i was doing e-commerce i was oh, okay yeah, yeah you know i was doing my little bits here and there mm. you know and doing um 
during the week I was doing e-commerce and then during the on the weekend I was doing test shoots um, with young photographers that I could relate to or just wanted me there or you know we could kind of play around and play around what, with ideas. What, what do you what do you mean you were doing e-commerce? So e-commerce is um, so basically e-commerce is like um, Bergdorf um, like online content. Right, got it. Okay, so yeah. like catalog work for online content. Got it. Basically, right. yeah, like catalog yeah. work, and and really, you can actually, especially in the US, you can earn quite a decent bit yeah. of money yeah, from definitely. doing that. Yeah. And and I actually really enjoyed it. I had quite a yeah. giggle doing that. It was quite a laugh. It actually reminded me a little bit of being back in back in my supermarket days, where you kind of had set hours. You'd know when your lunch break was because during, you know, yeah, a yeah. fashion suit, you never know when you're gonna, you know, when you're gonna start, but you never know when you're gonna finish. But do yeah. but e-commerce is, it's nine to five. You lunch break in between, and then it, the rest of it's work. And sure, and yeah. I kind of, I, I kind of had a, quite a giggle with that. I made quite, I made a lot of good friends doing that, and we had yeah. really good time. But e-commerce um, really kind of saved my bacon in a sense. It paid my rent. So what? When did you move back to London? I moved back to London, um, I think it was 2016, 2016 I moved back to London. It, my, my grandfather was really sick. You know, I'm very, 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 very close to my family. Um, my aunts and uncles and my grandma and my grandfather and whatever, you know, they, they, they're the most amazing people that... I could ever wish to know and um, my grandfather started to get my grandfather got cancer and got very sick and and I made the decision to kind of move back to London because I needed to be closer to them and mm. um, it was a very honest reason for moving back it wasn't mm. a career reason for moving back it it had nothing to do with my work or my job I just really yeah. felt like I wanted to be closer to um, my nan and granddad and my aunts and sure. uncles yeah yeah do they understand the world that you occupy now the world that you live in profession right so they all call so my cousins all call me bubbles yeah because they think that all i do is sit around drinking champagne all day so okay. they call me bubbles um because they think i live this fabulous lifestyle or drinking champagne going to parties you know living the life of luxury they have obviously that's not what it is at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. so far removed from that so yeah, uh, the answer to your question is no. They have absolutely no idea about what it is that I do. They have this preconceived idea that, you know, I live like the Kardashians and I'm fabulous and whatever, but it's really not like that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So what's, what I wanted to just come back to in a work sense is the difference between New York and London. What, what, yeah. what, what is the difference from a hairdressing perspective for you? I mean, I know the money is in New York. There's more money in New York yeah, than anywhere there is. You know, doing hair. Um, yeah. But but what are the other differences? What's what's better about London? What's better about New York? So New York, I managed to kind of. So in New York, I'm like like you said before. It's 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 very industry based. It's a working city. Mm. You can earn money in New York. I mean, you can get paid very very well, even from being an assistant in New York. You can get paid really really well, but. I just find London, and call me biased because I'm British, but London has that chaotic kind of 
you don't know what's going to happen next sort of thing. You, it, it, it's, it's very kind of like, it, it, it is, it's extremely creative, extremely mm. creative. And that's where I kind of get off most is, yeah. is when I see, you know, um, a kid walking down Shoreditch High Street in a pair of six-inch heels with a with a dead fox wrapped around his head. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? I remember, but honestly, that's that's something that I've seen when I very first moved to London. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it was a kid in a glitter cat suit walking down Shoreditch High Street in a pair of red heels and a dead fox from a charity <laughs> shop wrapped around his head with a pink red with a massive big bow. You know, oh, it's like amazing. you just don't see that anywhere else. That yeah, no, level exactly. of creativity yeah. and <laughs> that level of I don't it's that don't give a fuck attitude. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It's very kind of kooky and very British and very topsy turvy yeah. and a bit kind of yeah, like completely. you know, sausage roll, the sausage roll hanging out your mouth with a fag and a pint <laughs> and do you know what I mean? Like I, love oh, totally. I, t- I totally get it. I totally get it. I love well, it. How would you describe your your beauty aesthetic now? In fact, let me let me phrase that question slightly differently. Um, I asked Guido a question like that. I said to him, "If there was one thing that ran through your work as like a red line that runs through the last 30, 40 years of your work, what would it be?" Because when you look at a catalogue of his work, there's an enormous yeah. amount of variety yeah. and his answer was he just said punk there's always an element of punk yeah no matter yeah. what it is whether it's couture or, or you know whatever it is there's an, an yeah. element a little edge that you may not even always notice but i know it's yeah. there so yeah. asking you the same question so it comes from so basically it comes from the women and the men that I was brought up with. So basically, you go to a working man's club in the north of it, even in the south, but wherever in England you go to, like a working class northern men's, a working class um, working men's club. Everybody tries to make an effort, mm. but they get it so wrong. The women. The hair is teased, like the hair is so shit, so dyed, so bad. There's a the, the most amount of jewelry. The, the the makeup's piled on. The, the, the nothing really makes sense, but <laughs> they try to make they make the effort. Yeah. They they bring it. They believe in themselves. They've made themselves up on this Saturday night to go out and do karaoke in front of a load of drunken old souls. (laughs) The men with like the teddy boy quiffs that are kind of still rocking that at the bar, do you know what I mean? With the sovereign rings, you know, smoking the roll ups outside. Do you know what I mean? With the flannel socks on. That to me is so beautiful and so charming that it doesn't matter how wrong they've got it. They bloody tried. They've yeah. sat all. They've sat for most of the afternoon watching you being framed, plucking their eyebrows in front of a handheld mirror. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Smoking a fag and smelling a cheap perfume. <laughs> and and I, that to me is everything. Like that yeah. means everything to me. You know, like getting a takeaway on a Friday night because you can't be asked to cook and it's a little bit of a special thing. Do you know what I mean? Getting a Chinese take. All of that, like. 
the, the, the kind of very Britishness of all of that means everything to me. And that's really the root of the root, the very root of, of my work is you can a little bit special, a little bit off, but always really, really wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a reference. It's always there. Yeah. It goes back to what always. we talked about before with, with pushing the edge of what defines beauty. Beauty, yeah, because exactly. as you were talking about that, on one hand, you, on one hand you're slagging it off, but as you said, it's so beautiful at the end. Oh, I love it. Like it sort of goes yeah. full circle, and it is a very British thing that a it's, lot of people just don't get. It's a very British thing, and you know, Apart from last Christmas, obviously, because it was a bit, little bit different. But every Christmas I go back and I still go to the same working men's pub where all the old dears are still sitting, all the old fellas are still sitting. And it makes me, it just fills my heart. Like my heart's like the size of a, the size of a bloody elephant by the time I walk out because yeah. it's just so lovely. It's so lovely. And looking at that, you know, like, yeah, I can see like in the backlight i can see this woman's teased hair like looking like a looking like a walker's crisp do yeah. you know what i mean it's yeah. so see-through and the old fellas like got anyway but i just love it that they've made that effort yeah. and there's something just so beautiful about that i love it i love it i love it i love it yeah well one of the things i love when i talk to people like you who work on these big shows you know so when i saw the duffy or guido or, or, or nick urban whatever and yeah. I'll often talk about how you meet with the designer and they talk about, and, and I read something where you talked about the same thing. They talk about the character, the muse, the, the, yeah. the essence of what they want all the models in that show to, to encapsulate. Um, yeah. talk, talk about that process and how you, how you, research that and how you create that character because because that's the thing it's like it's not just about you know learning how to do hair how to tongue hair how to blow dry hair how to do a french roll of it's course. actually that's really just a, the abc of it it's really that's, about understanding agree. understanding references and yeah. and the character and the story behind it and you know i was intrigued when you were saying that even as a young kid you were drawn towards the women in your family and yeah. what they looked like and what beauty was and the magazines and the music you listened to. And yeah. it's sort of always been there, that, that, that part of you. How does that sort of manifest itself? And, and what's that process like for you now at a professional capacity when you go along and you're going to be doing the hair for, you know, such and such a show um, with, you know, one of the biggest designers in the world. What, talk about that process. I guess it's all about, so, you, first of all, you've got to be interested. You've got to be interested. You've got to, you've got to kind of want to know. And I think, you know, I was always a little bit different. So I was always drawn to some, drawn to music that was a bit different. You know, when I, you know, like, like I said, like listening to Depeche Mode and Paul, you said, and you know, my family thought that was really weird. They couldn't understand it because I wasn't listening to bloody Westlife. Do you know what I mean? But it. it it, I, I just think that you've got to kind of, it's really important and you can't just rely on the internet. I really believe that you cannot just rely on the internet. Mm. Go and buy a book. I've, I've got a whole living, like my, my house is full of books 
And I still really believe, you know, I've just done the Raf Simmons, um, um, I've just done the Raf Simmons show. And we spent two weeks, two and a half weeks referencing. All of my references came from the books that I had. I couldn't find what I needed in the, it, it, on the internet. I couldn't do it. It, it just, mm. I knew it just wasn't there. I just wasn't picking it up. All of the, everything that I had came from the books that I already had. So buy books, get interested in, go to an art gallery, go and look at, go and get, get, get interested in art. Fashion isn't just about fashion. It's definitely not. That's only a, a small, small part of it. Like learn about artists, illustrators. I love illustrators like um, James Jean, Varnia, um, uh, Daniel Coves, for example, is an incredible, incredible painter. But learn about art. Like, like the whole cultural thing is really rich. And it's so important that you kind of, you, you really, to get into what I, to what we're doing, to get into session styling, to get into fashion, you've got to immerse yourself in it. And not to just deal with fashion as a whole, but to deal with art, music, culture, pop culture. Like, learn about everything. And if you're not too clear on it, more than likely if you're interested on it, you're going to have friends who are, you're going to pick up friends along the way that know more than you do. Ask them questions. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Be with it, you know, get your mates to kind of be in this kind of little gang with you too, and to kind of um, all come together as a collective. I love that. I love the idea of kind of, you know, I had that. I had a group of friends where we kind of used to bounce ideas off one another and, oh, do you know about this? Oh, no, I haven't heard that. But what about this? You know, and I remember when I discovered Cindy Sherman through a friend of mine who I'd never, I didn't yeah. know about Cindy Sherman. And then mm. all of a sudden a friend of mine was like, oh, my God, have you seen Cindy Sh that Cindy Sherman exhibition? I was like, no, I don't know anything about it. You know, it's it's like you've got to be kind of really open to everything and not just about fashion. It's so important that you don't hone in just on fashion. Learn about every, pop culture, art, everything, like I said before. It's, that's yeah. really important and, and really kind of grow and yeah, make yourself good. feel uncomfortable. Like yeah. really that's important, I think, is – see things and do things that might make you feel, you know, like during lockdown um, last year, you know, I was taking bike rides to obscure places and seeing different, you know, seeing different buildings. I'd never done anything like that before. And it, it felt uncomfortable. It felt weird to do that. It didn't feel right that I was doing that, but I still did it. And I still, you know, I learned a lot from doing that. Like yeah. make yourself feel uncomfortable. Um, you'll, you'll actually learn more than you think you will. Yeah, no, definitely. With, with as be the world of being an editorial hairdresser, um, there's obviously the, the magazine work, the print. Um, yeah. Then there's obviously the show component. Um, yeah. And for some people, there's the sort of the red carpet element. What is your, what's your sort of go-to? What, what part of that do you like? I can tell straight away what part of it you don't like. <laughs> 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 I mean, I love. Um, do you know what? I I love I love editorial. I do love doing editorials. I didn't think when um, COVID came around and we stopped doing shows, there was a little bit of relief because I was kind of like, 
oh, maybe things will change. Maybe we can kind of do things a little bit differently in terms of what fashion weeks meant and in terms of what fashion weeks mean to people and especially to people that work in them. But actually now, I can't wait to get fashion weeks back. I love Mm. doing shows. It's made me really realise just how much I love doing shows. I love seeing my team. I've missed my team so much. Like my team are my my family and, and I love my team. I've missed seeing them. I think doing shows is really one of the most important things about being a session stylist. It's where you grow. It's where you learn. Um, it's where you kind of, you know, your communication skills, not just hair skills. You learn about, you know, you learn, you learn to think on your feet. Mm. During an editorial, you've got a lot more time to kind of manipulate your ideas and to kind of nurture your ideas. During a fashion show, you ain't got no time at all. You've got to think on your feet. You've got to think fast. Yeah. And I think I miss that. I miss that. I miss the rush of it. Um, I can't wait to be back at, backstage doing, doing a fashion show. I've missed it. I really have. And I never, ever thought I'd say that. If you'd have asked me that a few months ago, like a year ago, um, in February, I'd have been like, oh, God, sod fashion week. I'm over it. I can't bear it. You know, it's like I'm yeah, tired. Well, but now I'm like, I'm is, ready to get back to do it. It's a special sort of pressure. To be able it to do really that is. is like, oh, my God. It's like only special people can handle that without a shadow of a doubt. <laughs> What's been your career highlight so far? Um, I think, obviously, working with every designer brings its own set of challenges and its own set of rewards. And each designer I work with, they kind of push me into corners that I never I never thought that I could ever venture into. But I've got to be really honest, and this is no disrespect to any other designer that I work with. And, and again, I'm going to be really honest, but I think working with Raph Simmons has really kind of changed the way it's changed the way I work, it's changed the way I think. Um, he really kind of he has pushed me to places that I never imagined that I could go to. Um, and his way of working, his way of thinking, um, and also trying to get inside his head. He's he's, he's he's a bit of a mad professor. Do you know what I mean? And um, I think that working with him has been massively, massively, massively beneficial to me in terms of where I see myself going now and where I see my work developing. My work's changed so much since working with him. The very kind of perfection of it, his his idea of perfection has really kind of made me want to strive for the same perfection in every other area of fashion that I work in. Um, well, it's sort of that thing you said before about get uncomfortable. And it sounds like he yeah. makes you feel uncomfortable. He pushes you just it's to that the, bit where you're a little bit uncomfortable and that's where you learn stuff. And yeah. that's where the breakthroughs come. Yeah, I mean, we just, you know, like I said, I've just got back from Belgium from doing his um, his online show, and you know, the last yeah. the last um, the last days of filming was twenty two and a half hours long, mm. and you still have to kind of maintain the same level of professionalism at the end of the day as you did at the start of the day, even after twenty odd hours on set. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, it's 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 um, you know, it's. It's That's, bloody tough and it's totally, hard, but totally. it's rewarding. I sat, yeah. you know, I got back on. I, you know, 
had a glass of champagne on the Euro Star coming home, and I was like, I bloody did that. I did it. Mm. And I did it really well. And like, mm. I did it. And it's such an, it's such an amazing feeling. That feeling is the feeling that keeps me in what I, keeps me into what I'm doing. It's mm. the addiction. That's the addiction. Yeah. I, I know you're not someone who brags, but I, I need you to talk a little bit about who, whose, whose shows have you done? So John um, J.W. Anderson again, again J.W. Anderson is is a is an incredible incredible designer. I look up to him so much. Uh, J.W. Anderson, Erdem, Yves Saint Laurent. Um, oh God, who else? I've done things for Alexander McQueen, Prada, Miu Miu. Um, I've done things for Mark Jacobs. Um, Oh, is that enough? Yeah, that's enough. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just making sure people realise, you know, that that, that you're a, a serious editorial hairdresser, without yeah. a doubt. And yeah. you know, I love. I was looking at all your work before. You know, we got on this call, and and you know, I love your beauty aesthetic. Um, Thank you. And there was there's some things that you you really push and you look at and you go how the hell did he do that and I have to ask you about this one because I know that you did a um, it can only be described as a digital crop um, on uh, Giselle you know one of the biggest you know models on the planet. oh how, how did you do that like because you know Giselle's got long hair but obviously. You know, you'd somehow done a haircut, I'm guessing, and superimposed it. I mean, how did you do that? Because she looked so, Oh, my God. Do you know what? Actually, from that shoot, I made, I've made some of the best friends, and I'm still – one of them lives in London now. She moved from New York, and she lives in London, and she's, she's one of my best friends ever. But that was, that was so challenging. So, basically, I got called into um, Pascal Dangin's office, um, who works at Kids Creative, uh, two weeks before that shoot, and they were like, "Right, so we need to change Giselle. We want to kind of make her look different." And the one hair, and the one thing that Giselle's very, very, very famous for is this mane of hair. That's her kind of thing. Um, obviously, as well as the fact that she's incredibly beautiful and she's a supermodel, but her hair is really that thing that that is her is one of her signatures, and we want to kind of remove that to kind of make her look different. Um, and we want her to have um, this military cropped hairdo. And you've got two weeks to figure it out. I, I mean, I'm not, you know, yeah, I've worked, you know, obviously I've, I've been through a lot with Guido. I've learned tons and being on my own, I've learned tons. But one thing I am not is a prosthetics <laughs> specialist. So it was a, it was a, it was a lot of comment to it you know to and fro in and coming and going and we went around the houses a little bit and then in the end we ended up putting a bald cap on Giselle we hid all her hair put a bald cap on her did a top piece which is kind of like a a toupee piece which was a side part very slick down and then the side bits were literally hand painted we hand painted speckles onto her head to make it look like a great, like a, a, like fade. a fade. Wow. Like a yeah, barbershop yeah. fade. Yeah. yeah. That was hand painted. Wow. 
Okay, it was. Uh, I, yeah. I thought it was brilliant. I mean, I, I, I as I said, I like all your work. I love the direction and the the, the beauty set that you have. Um, and this has been a really self indulgent podcast for me because I love hearing what you talk about and giving you the, you know, the room and the time to talk about all of it. But one thing we haven't touched on, or you mentioned it, but I and I was holding off to talk about it, is that you are an incredible artist, like an illustrator. Uh-huh. And your your illustrations are like you know Tim Burton sort of figures for and yeah. I, I mean I just look at your your illustrations I mean they're beautiful I mean you've you've even got a separate Instagram account yeah. talk to us about how important art is to you in and, and that side of what you do is so I yeah I mean when I was you know when I was growing up I I never like I said I didn't really see myself as a hairdresser I always wanted to be an illustrator or a writer um, and so I kind of lost my way a little bit with that because going to be really honest I kind of I rebelled quite a bit found hairdressing during hairdressing I became a club kid I was a bit of a goth and the art thing kind of faded a little bit I wasn't really it kind of I kind of got lost in the hairdressing and the 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 club kid thing that I was and whatever but what all I've ever really wanted to do was to create things and to be creative and and to kind of nurture that and once I'd settled down and kind of stopped clubbing and got serious about hairdressing and kind of found my feet in that then I started to kind of re-find illustration and art. And um, during my spare time, especially if I'm on holiday or, you know, I've got time off and I've got nothing else to do, you know, just sit down and and draw, you know, it's like, it's meditation. It's, um, you know, I do a big pot of coffee, packet of fags and sit down and I draw and listen to my music, put my headphones on and, and it really meditate and and get lost in it and it's incredible like that's that's one of the that's one of my i was actually doing it today you know it's one of my favorite things to do you know since coming back from raf i'm a little bit fried so you know i kind of want to look after myself a little bit so big pot of tea packet of fags put my music on and 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 start to draw and really just kind of enjoy it and get lost in it and and I love that. It's I don't. Um, it wasn't until really lockdown last year that I kind of really started to kind of give that much of a damn about it because I, I did it for me, and then I started to put it on Instagram, and then a few people started to notice it, and that's when Mew Mew noticed it during lockdown last year because I had nothing else to do, so I was drawing all the time, and then they picked up on it and they ran with it and did a whole campaign based on my drawings, which I'm truly, that's truly gra- grateful yeah. for, um, um, especially to Katie Grant who who kind of championed it. Um, and and really, you know, one day I'd love to do a little book or write a kid's book. I always would lo- love to, Roald Dahl's one of my favourite yeah, authors yeah. of all time. Do you know what I mean? And I'd love to write a kid's book one day, but you never know. Does, uh, does the illustrating influence the hair you do or does the hair you do influence the illustrating? I think it's a bit of both. I think it's, a, it's very much a bit of both. I, th- I definitely think that so my illustrations feel a lot more oh, this is gonna sound a bit controversial, but my illustrations are a lot more honest about who I really am. Okay. Because 
at the end of the day, when I'm doing hair, I do hair as a hair is my job. It's my career. It's like it's what I get paid to do. Mm. Unless I'm doing a hair story for a magazine where I'm given full reign, most of the time I'm providing a service for people. That's what we do. And although I kind of give my take on it and I kind of put my little signature in there and I might make it a bit weird or a bit off or a bit skew-whiff or a bit mm. sick mm. somewhere, you know, some t- you've still got to please someone. I'm still, I'm, you know, it's, I'm still being paid to, to, for a service. Mm. If that makes sense, um, and really, I'm not. I'm you know I'm not going to be around the bush being paid quite generously. So I've still got to kind of give a lot to the client. That's really important, and I never want you know I never forget that. Mm. But when I'm drawing, I don't have to answer to anyone. It's mine. I can yeah. do whatever I want. You know, I can make it as weird or as kooky or as as kind of topsy-turvy or as twisted as I want to make it and, and nobody's going to tell me any different do you know what I mean so I think I put the hair that I'm doing on set on my kooky little drawings and they both complement one another quite nicely yeah, yeah. I think yeah well I encourage everyone to go and check them out on your on your Instagram account I think they're 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 beautiful so um uh, look we, we, we need to start wrapping up but I've, I've got to ask you a few questions that I'm, I'm gonna uh just get you to, to sort of answer as quickly as you can um yeah. because I think they're important questions the first one is what makes a good editorial hairstylist don't take it too seriously it's hair not heart surgery so be open don't always think that it's always about the hair because more than likely it's not always about the hair. Don't walk in there as a hairdresser. Mm-hmm. Don't walk in there thinking I've got to do some kind of massive firework display just to kind of make it happen. Sometimes yeah, yeah. a model, sometimes a model might walk in on set and she's just washed her hair and she sits down and I'm like, do you know what? She looks amazing. I'm not even going to touch it. Get in front mm-hmm. of the camera and I'll try and work it out. Great. It's about looking. In, it's about looking at the shoot as a whole. It's yeah. not always about the hair. That's what makes a good hairstyle, uh, editorial yeah, hairstylist. Yeah, yeah. And and again, it takes a lot of courage to do that, doesn't it? it to say does. she looks amazing, sit in front of the camera, and I'll just mess about with it a bit. But because that takes yeah. courage, you know, to, to be does. able to have the confidence to to say that. Um, okay. It next does. question is is sort of related to that, and I imagine the answer will will be connected to that. And it's that you must have a lot right. of young. Um, people on your team or people who want to be on your team yeah. and some of them make it, some of them don't. So what are the mistakes that you see that young hairstylists do that, you know, they want to become you, they want to be on your team. They want to progress into the, the session editorial hairdressing world, but you know, they just get something wrong. What is it that they do wrong? Do you know what? I think as a young person, I don't know if in the very beginning there is anything that you can get wrong. I think it's all about the people that guide you. I think it's all about the person. So for me, for example, you know, it's like I don't know if anything's wrong in the beginning. I think if you, I think if you've got somebody as a mentor or somebody backstage who can navigate you slowly but surely, gently mm. but firmly. Mm. into you know it's all about finding who you 
work with best. Mm-hmm. I don't think in the very beginning that really anything in terms of what your hairdressing skills are is wrong. The only thing that could possibly be wrong is, is that you think you want to get into fashion, but deep down you don't want to get into fashion. That's the only thing that could possibly be wrong. Because if you really, really deep down, if you've got this idea that you want to be this fabulous hairstylist that wants to travel the world doing top supermodels and live in this life of a jet set lifestyle, you are so wrong. That is never going to happen. If you deep down don't really want to work in fashion, it will, it's going to show. It's going to turn up. You're going to be found out for sure. Um, in terms of what you bring as a young hairstylist, I don't think that you could, I don't think there's anything wrong. I think you should just throw everything at it. And if you've got a good mentor, then they're going to steer you in the right direction and you're going to blossom, you yeah. know? Well, that, that, that's where I was thinking you were going to answer that was that when I talk to people at the very top of the pile, people like yourself and, and, and Guido and, and, uh, you know, Duffy and, and Luke Irwin, who are all on the, the podcast that I've been doing, there's a humility about all of them. And yeah. you do stuff that normal people don't get to do, and you see stuff that yeah. normal people don't get to see, and yet you're still humble about it. And so I was thinking, and I'm not putting the words in your mouth, uh, that you would probably say, and you sort of answered it with the first part of that question, is that don't think it's all about the hair because it's not. And that Often I think that's a mistake a lot of young hairdressers make is that they think they've got to impress you by doing some outrageous thing. And often it is just about knowing what the right thing to do is at the right time. And sometimes that's literally nothing. And that that takes courage to to be that person, to do that, and to really know that it's right. It is because you're building on a shoe, no matter if it's advertising or whether it's editorial, you're building a character. The model is a character. You're building an idea. You're building this fantasy. Whoever that character is, the hair's going to define that. The hair's going to make that. So if it has to be nothing, it's nothing. If it has to be something, it's something. And it's kind of knowing it. And that's a skill that takes years to build. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It takes a long time to kind of nurture that that skill. And you know, if you're any good, you'll kind of get it and you'll make it and you'll find it. But but sometimes, you know, the clothes themselves might, the clothes might speak for themselves, you know, and so you might not need any hair. And, and yet sometimes the clothes are a bit kind of like, maybe we need something. So we need the hair, you need the makeup to build the character. And it's knowing that, it's knowing about proportions and knowing when to, to, dive in and do something wacky or do something weird and then it's also knowing sometimes you know what scrape it back it doesn't need anything leave it down it doesn't need anything Mm. that's that's a really tricky that's a really tricky one to teach I, i don't think anybody can actually teach that it's just knowing over time and knowing through experience yeah yeah, I agree. Okay, well, look, we, we have to wrap up. We've gone way over time. Uh, and as I said, it's been very self-indulgent for me because I, I love just getting into how people think and, and who they are. And sometimes you've got to give yeah. people the space to, to be that person. And I've, I've really enjoyed, you know, getting to know you and hearing your story and what makes you tick. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, 
Oh man, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure. Have you got any any final words for our audience before we wrap up? Um, I guess. Oh, it might be a bit cheesy actually. Just say, you know what? Um, no matter, I'm gonna I'm gonna be totally cheesy, but it's not right. cheesy because it, it matters to people that it matters to. But you know what? I didn't come from a lot, and look where I've got. Do you know what I mean? I'm proud of myself. Yeah. I did it. Yeah. You can do it. Of course you can. Just fuck it. Get out there. Give yourself a kick up the arse. Go and do it. Yeah. It's all good. Yeah. It's all those decisions you make along the way, isn't it? It's having the cup, of course it is. Make those brave. decisions and have a go. Yeah. What's the worst thing that can happen? There's, you know what I mean? there's no worst thing that can happen. That's the mm. thing. It's not. You're not going to die. No one's going to get injured. You're always going to survive it. You will always be all right. No matter yeah. what, you will always be all right. Exactly. Well, good words to finish up on. So where can people connect with you? So you can check my work out on um, Anthony Turner Hair on Instagram, or if you want to have a look at my drawings, it's Anthony Turner Illustration. That's if you want to. Um, I'm not on Facebook because I can't bear it. And um, I might join Twitter sometime soon, but who knows? But Instagram is where you can find me. (laughs) Right, okay. And and he is Anthony with an H, okay. He's A N T H O N Y. Yeah. Uh, Turner here, and I'm Anthony without the H. So I will put those uh, links on our website, uh, Grow My Salon Business. Uh, they'll be in the show notes for today's podcast. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast with Anthony Turner, then do me a favor and search for the Grow My Salon Business uh, on Apple Podcast app, and then scroll to the bottom of the page and leave a rating and review. Uh, so to wrap up, Anthony Turner, thank you so much for spending time on the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. Thanks for asking me along. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.